0: We were talking about biblically healthy local churches, body life in the local church, same thing. If you say a biblically healthy church, what are you talking about? You're talking about the body of the local church being biblically and spiritually healthy. Um, we started off with preaching the word and the power of the spirit. There's no, not going to be a church. There's not going to be certainly, well, I shouldn't say that. The church can exist without a pastor. It can't exist well without a pastor. And God's way is that it's very seldom and very limited time when a people might be called a church and they not have a pastor. But it, it, while pastors are not essential for the being of the church, they are essential for the well-being of the church. And uh, Brother Richard Caldwell preached powerfully and wonderfully on the essential of preaching the Word and the power of the Spirit. I'll hit on some of that this morning. And we talked about... Um, the wolves from without, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said, I'm going to leave. And in effect, I've been a good pastor for you. I've preached to you the whole counsel of God. But when I leave, savage wolves are going to try to come in from without. And so Brother Darrell and Brother Virgil have done a fantastic job of warning us of the wolves and the wolf doctrine that's trying to get in. And we've got to keep out. Amen? And then uh, there's not going to be a healthy church. If you don't quit and then not quit a thousand times. Brother John O. Sims preached powerfully, and wonderfully on don't quit. Did y'all get that message? I, th- I th- thought you did. Huh? Well, I've assigned myself protecting the church from savage wolves from within. Now, I've broadened my topic out a little bit to kind of take in the whole broad perspective of biblically healthy church life. But I will deal with those main topics of biblical conflict resolution, biblical counseling, and biblical church discipline. But I want to put things in a packaged whole. And I get teased a lot about my 20-year vision thing. Um, Well, I'm in my 41st year, and I learned things studying this week I'd never seen before, Brother John. We're always learning, so I'm going to have to change it to a 41-year vision. And uh, you're not done until you get put in 41 years. At least that's true for me. But a lot of you are better and smarter than I am. So I'm using this tree analogy. It'll be on your screen to illustrate where we're going and what we're talking about. Go ahead and put the whole full screen up, if you would, Brother Tommy. Um, We'll start with the roots of a biblically healthy church or biblically healthy body life. And that is you must be Bible-driven or have a biblical theology. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Then coming on up from the roots, the trunk of the tree is preaching the word and the power of the spirit, the limbs of the tree, biblical structures and strategies, and the fruit is the agape mature love shared in the local church body. That's the crown. That's where we're getting to. Um, Grace Life Church of the Shoals has not arrived, but we walk in these truths I'm not teaching you just what I studied. I'm teaching you what we're experiencing. And many dangers, toils, snares, mistakes, repentance, corrections, and starting over again, okay, in that 40 years of journey. So let's talk about the roots first of all. The roots of the tree of the biblically healthy local church. So what I'm calling it must be Bible-driven or you could say have a biblical theology. Now, what I mean by that is when you look at the Bible and in the flow of progressive biblical revelation, what is the ever-developing theme? So you go Genesis through Revelation, and God slowly unpacks and unfolds what his purpose is, what the main thing is. Um, you might say in the, in the Old Testament, it's contained. Then you progress to the New Testament, it's explained. In the Old Testament, it's somewhat concealed in types and shadows. In the New Testament, it's revealed. So when we study through the progressive revelation of the book, what is that ever-developing theme? Now, listen to this. That is climatically verified in the culmination of the book. What's the theme that flows and progresses and unfolds? And then at the end, it comes crystal clear what God was all about. Well, I've outlined that with three aspects. There are three components to this gem, if you will, of a biblical theology, or what is the main point. Number one, the priority of God's glory. You cannot study through the text, and you certainly can't get to the climactic end without realizing the priority is the glory of God. When Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, revered be thy name. Now, he's not talking about praying and hallowing God's name. Certainly, we should do that. He's saying when you pray, pray that the hallowing of God's name will be established in the earth because that's how it's going to end up at the climactic conclusion. All that will be left is those who hallow the name of the Lord. So this purpose of glorifying God is the prominent theme. I think of the three things I'm going to mention under the biblical theology head, it's the foundation stone, if you will. I like what one Greek scholar said is a good definition for glory. And he said, it's to esteem as glorious, to make the dignity and worth of something or someone to be manifest. God is all about manifesting in the earth his dignity and worth above all others all right now folks that's got to be with you in the ebb and flow of all of your pastorate that God wants to make his dignity worth you can expand that out to the other attributes his beauty his power his wisdom etc etc he wants it to be made known all right now that's why we have a purpose statement. You'll see our purpose statement on the screen. And after almost four decades, I finally edited it, Brother John O. Do you see the parentheses there? I put something else in there. I just couldn't stand it no longer. I had to put the local church in there. The purpose of Grace Life Church of the Shows is to glorify God. That's first. How? Our way? By through our clever ingenuity and finding out what's going on in the culture and adapting it? No. By obeying him, by obediently making and equipping disciples of Christ, which is establishing local churches, both in the shows and throughout the world, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think not thoroughly, there's much, by the way, everything I'm going to talk about, there are hours and hours and hours more to say, and much I must leave out, okay? Well, we need to have a and a we need to have lunch, so I'm going to hit things and run that need expanding. And I would like to say this too. If you find something you think is worthy of taking down as a note, let me encourage you, just take the broad outline this morning and get the messages later if you want to fill in a lot of the blanks because I just want you to hear what we're saying. Now in John 12:23, the Bible says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He said, I'm about to do something that's going to cause people to make much of me, going to cause people to honor and praise and talk of my worth and dignity. Of course, that was the cross. Now, scholars would say, well, this is referring at least partially to his resurrection, ascension, and glorification. Surely that's true. But it also points particularly to his work at the cross of redeeming his church, saving his elect children. In John 12, 27, and 28, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. We see this humanity, if you will, of Jesus. Now, we don't know. We can't enter the mind of the Godhead. But here Jesus said, Should I avoid this? Should I just get around this? No, I came for this. I came for this purpose, talking of the cross. And then he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. So he says, now, Father, we've had this plan from eternity past, and I'm going to the pentacle center point event of what's going to glorify you, the saving of our church at the cross. So he says, now, Father, let's let's do what we're all about. Let's glorify your name. Notice that other verse, by the time we put it back up there, Father, glorify your name. Verse 28, then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. I don't, again, being reverent, I don't want to take a silly human uh, interpretation of God the Father and God the Son, but it's, it's as if God the Father, or rather God the Son said, let's glorify your name. And the Father said, oh, Son, don't, don't worry about that. I've glorified my name, and I think that means through what you're doing right now, coming to the centerpiece of your work in ministry, the cross, and saving the church. I've glorified it through that. And by the way, I'm going to start building this church, and then I'm going to at the end glorify it with us forever. I have glorified my name, and I'm going to keep on doing it. Look, brothers and sisters, God is thrilled about being God. He's absolutely, can I use the phrase, tickled to death at himself. He's the only being in the universe that can look in the mirror and say, perfect. If God didn't rejoice in God, he would be a sinner himself. God is all about manifesting his glory. So we find out that Jesus is driven to glorify the Father i.e. particularly in his work of redeeming his church and building his church. And by the way, so should we. Are you with me, church? So should we. So the Father also is driven to glorify his own name. I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, my question to those of us who are pastors, as you prepare your sermons, as you preach your sermons, as you shepherd your local church flock, are you as passionate about God's glory and particularly the work of God's Son in building His church His way as He is concerned about it? Are you as passionate as He is? I can answer that. You're not. But there ought to be something in our hearts that say, Lord, I want to be. They ought to be at least the German there, brother, that says, I want to be glory of God centered and glory of God focused in the motive of why I do everything I do. That's what I mean by Bible driven and have a biblical theology behind the totality of our pastoral work. That's the only way to build a true or healthy church. To have this as the driving force of your church is key. Here's what's not key. Are you listening? If you have as the definite article, the driving force of your church to save sinners from hell, you are at least unbalanced and at the most unbiblical, if not blasphemous. Did you hear that? Now, we have a passion for souls here. Have you seen the mission work we're part of? Do you know the church Juan just talked about is the first church planted among an unreached people group by any church in America without the aid of a career missionary? God let us get in on that. Here's what I'm saying. We're passionate for souls, but the passion for souls and keeping people out of hell is a great motivation, but it is not the motivation of the church. The glory of God is the motivation. And God is most glorified when his children are sought and his children are saved and his children are added in in God's local churches. So let's don't take a secondary motive. I'm trying not to get off track so hard. Did y'all see the video? Not trying real hard right now. Did y'all see the video of the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orlando, Florida, to adamantly proclaim that you must have immoral people and sinners on your membership roll because that's the best way to reach them for Christ? Blasphemy. Absolute blasphemy. Radically the inverse of biblical doctrine. That's why you've got to have a biblical theology. Brother Barry King, that's a man who praises, quote, winning souls over the truth. He's got it backwards. Matter of fact, he will not win as many souls that way. He may add a bunch of numbers of people who jump through hoops, but he won't build God's church that way. Unbelievable. See, what, now what's he driven by? He's driven by his own cleverness and creativity. He's driven by an unbiblical theology, not a biblical theology. Now, let's be gracious, all right? I wasn't very gracious to him, was I? But he's, he's an older fellow. Good night. He ought to know what he's doing. But brothers, let's be gracious to one. There's good brothers. Now, are, there are some brothers out there. Well, I presume they're brothers. There are a lot of men in the pulpits who aren't saved. But there are men out there in pulpits who are prostituting the church to build their own stuff and glorify their own names. That's why they're doing all this clever, crazy stuff to appeal to the world. But on the other hand, let's be patient and gracious because there are a lot of pastors who mean well, they just haven't grown. Uh, Brother John, oh, we know that process. You just learn and you realize, hey, I'm thinking wrong here and I'm, I'm thinking wrong about that. And you repent and you get things better in line. So a lot of pastors are like Apollos. They need anchored in truth. They need you. They just need folks to bring them aside like Aquila and Priscilla brought Apollos aside and showed him a more excellent way. So let's be gracious with one another. Can you get amen right there? We're all growing and learning together. Okay, the second part of our Bible-driven theology that's going to build a healthy church is the preeminence of the Son of God. First, we had the priority of the glory of God. Next on the tree, the preeminence, that's the trunk of the Son of God. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church, and He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place or the preeminence in everything. That's the passion of our hearts, that Christ might be exalted in everything. And obviously, these interlinked, they're inseparable. That is to the glory of God. Now, in 2 Corinthians, we'll not spend a lot of time here, but in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 6, Paul talks about how the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see, they can't see who Jesus is. They can't see the preeminence he ought to have because Satan's blinded their minds. They can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's in the image of God. Then he says in verse 6, For God has said, Light shall shine in darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Satan's blinded the eyes, but then God has shown in the hearts of believers. So in the hearts of believers, we carry a light put there by the new birth. So now we can see what God has known all along. We can see and know that the glory of God is most fully seen in the Son of God. And you never can leave this out, brothers, and in the work of the Son of God in building his church. That's why I'm rabidly local church-centered. So as we think about the glory of God, we think of the preeminence and the honor we give to the Son of God and the Son of God's work of building His church. Pastors, do you realize what an awesome, trembling position you've been assigned to? To co-labor with Jesus in this work of building His church and glorifying God the Father. If we properly preach any biblical text, we will properly exalt Jesus Christ. Now, the third component to this biblical theology that must drive us, and one way to look at this is this biblical theology is the dye that permeates the entire fabric of our ministry. Did you hear that? It permeates, everything. It permeates sermon preparation. It, it permeates our proclamation when we're preaching. It permeates how we structure and design and run the church this biblical theology must be the driving force. It must flavor everything we do. Now, the third part is the centrality of the local church. I know theologians would probably argue and say, well, you probably not, should not put local there because, you know, in the eternal state, it will all be one big glorified church. I know that, but we live in time, and all we know in time are local churches. Ephesians three twenty and 21, that to him who is able... To do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within. To him be glory. There it is again. Now notice the horizontal hill. Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Just for time? No. To all generations forever and ever. What God was Planning in Genesis one one that he unfolds to the progressive revelation of the Bible that becomes very clear in the New Testament that culminates climactically in the glorified state at the end is that Jesus is going to build a church. And the church along with Jesus brings God great glory. Because actually they're inseparable. He's the head, it's the body. You can't you can't honor me and dishonor my wife. You can't love me and not love my wife too. We're one flesh. You can't honor Jesus and not honor and love the church. So the priority, so much more I need to say, but I'm not going to say for time's sake. At least don't think I am. Let me look right here. No, I've basically said that. The priority of God's glory, the preeminence of God's son, the centrality of God's local church. Pastors, that ought to be burning in your hearts 24-7. Part two, we're moving on up the tree. The roots of the tree is a Bible-driven passion or a biblical theology that drives everything. Sap comes on up and then we come to the preaching of the word in the power of the Spirit. Now, you could argue that the preaching of the word might ought to be the roots because it informs the biblical theology, and that's true. But for my purposes, I'm coming from a perspective of of you're already converted and you already have a general understanding of of sound biblical theology. Now, the preaching of the word is the instrument, the primary instrument. It's the trunk. Nothing's going to happen with a tree if the trunk isn't solid. It's the primary instrument used by God in building the church. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourselves approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Studying is implied here. That's, there's hard work in that. Approved is mentioned here. That means tested and proven. A, a workman, that's what it's called here. By the way, preaching is hard work. If you're going to build a healthy church, with graciousness, with wisdom, with balance, you're going to have to say no to your people a lot of times when they want your time and attention because you've got to prepare to preach. I offended a lot of people at this church the first 20 years because they were used to a pastor who was on call 24-7, and I just wasn't available 24-7 because I, I'm not one of these guys that can throw it together in two hours. And it's laborious to prepare sermons exegetically sound, and local church-centered sermons. So you've got to understand, look, Satan is probably not going to bring a band of infidels to march up and down in front of your church to keep you from studying. But here you'll use some sweet little old lady that everybody loves in the church to talk about you. He don't care about me. He didn't have time for my call. And you're just going to have to take it. Be kind, be gracious. But you've got to make a priority to preach and prepare to preach. Now, if you're a layperson here with your pastor, you be the warrior that helps your church understand whatever else that man does, he has to preach the word to us. I don't care if he makes it when mama's surgery. I hope he can, but if he don't, if he preaches the word in the power of the spirit, I'm happy. If you talk to Grace Life Church people, I spend a good bit of time out on my farm sitting on a tractor and doing stuff like that. My people tell you, we don't care if he goes to Six Flags every week, if he's ready to preach on Sunday, whatever it takes. If it helps him meditate and get ready, that we don't care. And I think that's why God's allowed me to grasp a lot of things. I've had more time to study and meditate than almost any other preacher I know. Then he says here, we've got to be handling accurately the word of truth. Uh, you know the idea there, cut it straight. Scholars say it's probably... Uh, like a stonemason has to cut his blocks straight or they're not going to fit straight in the building. Or an engineer, when he builds a road, he's got to have his angles, his degrees right. And so we've got to be careful to cut it straight, to exegete it properly. And the only way I know of to handle the text and cut it straight, handle it accurately, is through expositional preaching, verse by verse chapter by chapter, interpreting the text grammatically, contextually, historically, culturally, and what I call systematically, which gets into our biblical theology. What does the Bible say here about the the thing that this text is particularly saying? And all of that, brothers, must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I can't emphasize that strongly enough. You do understand you can be a faithful expositor for 40 years, dot every I and cross every T, and miss a humble yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, and you've been a waste of time. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit behind the effort is essential. I mean, there needs to be a desperation of yielded dependency in your spirit as you study. I say it regularly, oh, dear God, if your spirit don't help me, this is not going to work. Now, you can impress men without the Spirit, but you can't build God's church without the Spirit. Now, strap in, listen carefully. Do not misunderstand what I'm about to say. I want to exhort you about something Dr. Seal and Dr. John o. and I have been talking about for a few years, and that's what I'm calling expositional idolatry. Oh, my goodness, can you even think such thing? Expositional idolatry. Now, lest you think I'm like Charles Spurgeon and don't do exposition. I said that on purpose. Are you getting what I'm saying? I think he's a pretty good preacher of the Word. Can I get amen? I don't recommend that because you're not Spurgeon. He had a brain that God only gives out once every 100 million people. Now, he just had an ability that's just off the charts. For all the rest of us normal preachers, (laughs) the mainstay of our pulpit must be exposition. i preached through 27 books of the Bible here, six years going through Luke, four to five years going through Hebrews, and Lord only knows Isaiah, because I preached it Sunday morning and Sunday night. It might have been eight years. Don't do that. Don't do that to you people. Don't take that long in your exposition, okay? Do better than I did, all right? I'm saying that to say I don't have to back up to anybody to say I'm an expositional preacher. But I have been guilty of expositional idolatry until a dear, faithful brother years ago released me from that idolatry. Listen to these texts. Well, let me say this first. You have to grasp, pastors, that. You can preach expositionally and have a name that you're alive, but yet be dead. Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus gives this culminating charge to his church. Go into all the world, make disciples of all preachers. Teaching them all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You know, it's interesting what Jesus says there. Now, you guys are going to go out. I want you to go on to all the earth and expositionally preach my word. He didn't say that. He said, teach them to do everything I've commanded you. Now, exposition is an essential foundation to getting your people to do it, but it's not the end of getting your people to do it. There's more than just that to pastoring is what I'm saying. Now, let me tie this in, and you're going to have to think with me this morning. If I'm missing it, then privately tell me later. Don't tell me in front of anybody, okay? In John 7, 17, and 18, there's something incredible here. John 7, 17, and 18, if anyone, here's the phrase, is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus said, If from your heart, in effect, you love God and really want to serve and obey and please God, then God will enable you to know the truth in our context of the text. Did you get that? You know why some people can exegete the Scripture wonderfully and powerfully, but they never really get it? Because in their hearts, there's not the abiding passion, Lord, I want to be pleasing and obedient. And for us pastors, I mean pleasing and obedient in how I structure, build, form this church. Y'all getting this? The passion of the heart to be pleasing to God and obedient is a key to interpretation. It's not just an intellectual activity. Dr. Sill and I talk about this all the time. You've got to learn the nuts and bolts of sound exposition, and he's as good as it gets on that. But Dr. Still and I haven't found a way to cut a guy's chest open and get the Holy Spirit in there yet. I mean, if they don't get that heart right, they're going to take everything Tim teaches them and just misuse it. And the sad thing is a lot of people will brag on them because they're not wise enough to see the difference between true local church exposition and expositional idolatry. Now, let me build this on a little bit more. Listen now. Jameson Fawcett Brown. I love, do y'all like Jameson Fawcett Brown's commentary? I just love it. It's just a great quick commentary. The guys just seem to get it. In this phrase about, if you're willing to do God's will, then you'll know, in effect, then God will illumine the understanding. Here's what they say about that. A principle of immense importance. I don't think I'm missing it. If Jameson Fawcett Brown says I'm right, I must be right. They're saying, this is immensely important, Pastor because I'm in the context of pastors here. This applies in other ways, but us as pastors. Jameson Fawcett and Brown goes on and says, singleness of desire to do God's will is the grand inlet to light on all questions. What's this text mean? How does that apply to the church? If in my heart I really desire God's church be built his way, on his doctrines, structured the way he wants it, functioning the way he desires, then God has promised I'm going to open up to you, primarily in the area of application in your sermon, I'm going to open up to you the insights that will really help you have an effective ministry.
1: I could run through a wall right now. Brothers and sisters, that's gold. That's gold. It ain't my gold. This is God's gold, but it's gold.
0: Well, I've quoted Jameson, Fawcett, and Grant. Let me quote Knoblet. Here's what I would say. Love for God and a true desire to obey his will in building a biblically, spiritually healthy church is the key to proper interpretation of the text and proper unction in the preaching of the text. It's the key to grasping what God wants you to see and know and the key to it coming out and having effectiveness and the hearts and lives of the hearers in your local church. Now, in John seventeen, seventeen and 18, he, he gives two contrasts here. In contrast to the one he says, if he's willing to do his will, he says, then there are those in effect, verse 18, those who speak from himself, they seek their own glory. But he is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He's true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. Now he's talking about himself. But is it not true that we in the ministry, and if you don't have to fight here in repentance, if you tell me you're not fighting here in repentance because you don't have to, then I'm telling you you're a liar. We all have to keep fighting that pride thing, don't we? Oh, God, it's not about me. Oh, God, get me out of the way. Oh, God, I repent of thinking that I'm important. Your church is what's important. But what I charge you to do, brothers, is be in that fight. Can I get amen there? Fight with me there. Let's fight together for that so that God will open up our understanding and give us grasp of what he's trying to accomplish in his church and what he wants to teach through the text. Jesus says those who are in it for their own glory are not allowed to understand the truth the way it ought to be understood. The Bible says those things are foolishness to the natural man. The natural man, digging it with all of his might, can't get it. He may be brilliant, may not every I and cross every T of expositional study, but if he's a natural man without the Spirit's enablement, and particularly that special light, God says he'll give us if our hearts are genuine to build his church his way for his glory. You see, an atheist may perfectly follow the rules of exposition, But God does not allow the atheist to properly grasp the truth or certainly not to preach it. An atheist can study and study and study and study, and he can articulate the historical context, but he doesn't get it. You know why he doesn't get it? He doesn't have a love for God's glory, and he doesn't have a love for the good of God's church. It's all about him studying it. Now, if Satan cannot get you to slack on exposition, he can do just as good by getting you to slack on your application of the exposition in local church life. If he can't get you to slack on your study for your exposition, he'll get you to slack off on the application of your study to the local church. Why he said in John 7, 7, if he's willing to do my will, he will know the teaching. Uh, The scholars say this is experiential knowledge. They say this means you'll be able to grasp the certainty and the importance, the authority of the teaching, the doctrine that's in your text. So this speaks to heart conviction and determination of the teaching. Now I'm convinced that though with many weaknesses and failures and repentance seasons, etc., but I'm convinced my decades long passion here to send out spirit empowered preachers and to plant or revitalize so that we can have spiritual, biblically spiritual local churches to the glory of God. And my love and passion for that is why he's allowed me to grasp some things about local church life and local church structure and local church ministry. I know the certainty of some things because of my desire to please him in what's important to him. Brothers, you don't use God to help you be a great expositor. God
1: uses you to build his church.
0: Now, I preached through 27 books of the Bible for 40 years. Actually, it's more than 27 because I picked up Romans and Psalms while the former pastor let off and I preached those half of books. And then there are many sections I exegeted, you know, a sermon on the mount, whatever it might be. Let me give you um, this key question. Here's a key question to discern if you might be an expositional idolater. Or let me say it this way. To what degree the temptation to be an expositional idolater has taken root in your heart. None of us are 100% free here. But you ought to be on the high road of repenting of it and staying above it. Amen?
1: Key question. Is your primary motive to be known as a great expositor? or to build a true church? Is your primary motive
0: to be known as a great expositor or to build a true church? Now, as far as I can tell from the biblical text, there will be no expositional preaching in heaven. Anybody found a text that, I don't see that anywhere. Brother Barry, you run across that in your studies. As far as we know from the Bible, there'll be no expositional preaching in heaven, but there will be a healthy church in heaven. You see, that was the end of it all. That was the goal. That's the climactic conclusion that validates the theme that unfolds through all the Bible. In heaven, Christ will be there face to face now Christ is revealed through the faithful preaching of the Word of God empowered by the Spirit. Christ is made known to people through preaching. You won't have to make him known there. He's there. (laughs) He's in heaven. We'll see him face to face. There'll be no need to make him known. Why would you listen to me or Brother John O. preach exegetically in heaven when Jesus can just talk to us?
1: Are you with me? So I
0: believe to the degree that you esteem preaching over the purpose of preaching a healthy church, you're an idolater. And it's the heart condition.
1: Now, we live and die on exposition, so you can't pin that on me. But
0: it's the heart issue. The degree to which you esteem preaching over the purpose of preaching, then you're an idolater. And if this is true and you're an expositor, then you're an expository idolater don't miss the forest for the trees god is not looking so much for quote know-it-alls end of quote god is looking for quote do-it-alls end of quote go therefore and teach them to obey all that i've commanded you you're not finished when you preach the word you just told the church when you preached hey here's stuff we're fixing to change in this church i found it in the text We're reforming this church. And I'm telling you, in those early years, talk to my church members, they came in all knots in their stomach when I'd preach. They say, he's going to run across something else we're not doing, and he's he's going to start making us do that too. Well, that's what you do. You preach it so we can start living it as the body of Christ. Exposition is not the
1: end. It's the means to the end of a healthy church.
0: Keep that order in your heart and mind. We don't want to be like the silly women that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, 7. Silly women are those who, the context teaches us, love their sin and made a serrade of loving God. These silly women that Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 3, they chose to chase one fad, one gimmick, one new novel teacher after another. They would study, study, study with these new guys or Beth Moore or whoever it is. And they used the word as a novelty and not to obey Jesus as Lord. So a preacher that does not deeply desire to reform and obey God's will for his church, he may not be a silly woman, he's become a silly preacher. He don't understand. He's always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He don't even get what it's about. God has fulfilled what I'm about to tell you. I'd much rather be known that my church is a godly, spiritual, loving, mature church than be known that Jeff Noblet's a great preacher. That's rubbish because you know why? I might be, quote, the great preacher for a little while. Then somebody else is, quote, the great preacher. Then somebody else is, quote, the great preacher. When you build a true true church, that lasts for eternity and gives God's glory for time and eternity. That's what God's called us to do, brothers. The wheel illustration is something we use here to mark out the structure of what we're about. The wheel is, um, they'll put it up there in a minute. It shows you basic biblical structures for how we function in the church. Well, the wheel came out of my exposition. We'd learn and study, confirm that church history had a lot of it because you're not going to find something in the Bible that 2,000 years of church history missed. That might not be in recent church history, but if you go back a few decades or a few centuries, you'll find people who lived out the Bible truth that you're burdened you're not seeing in churches today. But that came out, that practical understanding of functioning this way. And by the way, you don't have to do the wheel. You don't have to do it my way. You're welcome to copy anything we have. You can do something else as your illustration. And matter of fact, I found through the years, every illustration falls apart. It doesn't quite adequately display God's truth. It never can. But it gives us some help and some idea. We like to say the local church is theology in shoe leather. We like to say that sound exposition proclaims sound doctrine and theology, but it must produce a sound methodology. That's our methodology. As your sound preaching, is it producing a sound methodology of structure and function in the local church? I'll close with this. Uh, There's a guy who owns an 18-wheeler truck. You've seen some of these 18-wheeler trucks. And um, this thing's rigged out. Chrome wheels. Got flames painted on the hood. The side of the truck's got this big stagecoach scene. It's just beautiful. You get a glimpse of the inside of the cab, and it's plush leather. It's got a sleeper, microwave, satellite TV. I mean, amazing. But interestingly, you look at his logbook, and you find that the miles driven and the, and the loads hauled, he's about half of average. Just about half of average. Then you got another truck driver. His truck's painted drab white, vinyl seats, no sleeper, no microwave, no satellite TV. The trailer is just dull, unpainted gray. But you look at his logbook, and he runs about 110% of average on runs made and loads hauled. He hauls the load. Now, if you preach an exposition... That's not primarily primarily driven by a love for God and a desire to reform God's church to be spiritually and biblically healthy. Then you are polishing the truck and not hauling the load.
1: Woo! Do you hear his sermon? Polished up nice. I want to see his church. Show me his church. Show me his people.
0: Paul said, you're my letter, known and read of all men. Brothers, your letter, some of y'all writing books. You might want to live a book first, but nevertheless, I'm not saying you're wrong for writing it. Those are helpful, obviously. But let your church be your book, your statement of who God is and what God's about. And You know what I found out? You never get done. Brother John, I'm still writing that book. I've had to go back and tear, tear out whole chapters <laughs> and think, boy, I missed it on that one. That wasn't biblically right. I've got to redo that one. So we just keep reforming God's church out of the overflow of our expositional preaching until we take our last breath and we get to heaven. And we'll wait for that day when God will glorify what we somehow in grace got in on starting.